0: I was a kid that read Douglas Adams, okay, when I was in high school, (laughs) Hitchhiker's Guide. And I think that people, I'm going to show my bias here. I think that if you meet someone who read Douglas Adams in high school and then grew up, they might be dorky, but they're probably civically engaged. You meet someone who actually thought Ayn Rand was like their be-all, end-all. I just fundamentally distrust those people, (laughs) right? And that is a problem.
1: Hey, it's Rafi Krikorian, and this is Technically Optimistic. You can hear the entire first season of our show, six episodes, all about AI, right now in this feed. But if you're here for another bonus episode, then you're in the right place. In the last week's bonus episode, I talked with native Hawaiian geneticist Keolu Fox about implementing indigenous technology into the stewardship of the earth. We had this conversation in the wake of the deadly wildfires on Maui, but Keolu has tons of ideas about how to make the future better, like planet-friendly computing, eco-conscious tourism, and an absolutely cutting-edge way of doing data storage. Listen, it's a dark moment for Maui and Hawaii right now, but this was a surprisingly hopeful conversation, and I hope you check it out if you haven't yet. My guest this week is Ian Bremmer. He is a political scientist and the president and founder of the Eurasia Group, a political risk research and consulting firm. I talked with Ian in episode three, where he outlined what it would take to initiate a truly global effort to regulate AI. And since we last talked, he's refined his ideas on this topic. He's written a fascinating new essay called The AI Power Paradox. It's in the September-October issue of Foreign Affairs. We'll put a link in the show notes. And he co-wrote it with Mustafa Suleiman, the co-founder of the AI research lab DeepMind, which was acquired by Google in 2014. In the piece, Ian lays out a vision for what he calls techno-credentialism, which you'll hear him bring up in our conversation. It's a term he coins for a broad regulatory goal of somehow mitigating risks to global stability without choking off innovation. For Ian, this means really paying attention to the rapidly changing nature of AI. And he imagines allowing AI developers an unprecedented seat at the table. This is necessary, as Ian and Mustafa write, to quote, reflect the new technological balance of power that has put tech companies in the driver's seat.
0: The overwhelming, Number of moves that are being made on the chessboard will be made by the technologists. And that's because the government officials are just starting to get up to speed. So we don't have the institutions, we don't have the expertise, and they're just getting up to speed. And governments move slowly. And meanwhile, the corporations have hundreds of billions of dollars that they're deploying. So in the near to medium term future, the tech companies are doing almost all of the driving. That we can be certain of. I want to
1: be honest. While I have a ton of respect for Ian's expertise, I'm not quite fully convinced by the plan in this essay. He calls for a lot of involvement from the tech companies themselves, which is a strange way to go about regulation. I mean, is this plan any different than letting these companies regulate themselves? And I can't help but ask this question because his co-author, Mustafa Suleiman, who is brilliant, is also a founder of one of the major AI players. And though he left Google in 2019, he co-founded a new startup, Inflection AI, in 2022. So, not quite a neutral player. But I sat down to talk with Ian about the essay, and to voice some skepticism about his plan. Oh, and by the way, we'd love to hear what you think of the show. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or send us an email with your thoughts, feedback, or questions to Optimistic at emersoncollective.com. You can visit us on the web at emersoncollective.com slash technically-optimistic-podcast. And follow us on social media at Emerson Collective. Here's my conversation with Ian Bremmer. Ian, I love the essay. I read it twice. Early on, you write, AI is not just software development as usual. It is an entirely new means of projecting power. Can you walk us through why this particular technology requires us to rethink the nature of power?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, for your and my lifetimes, when we think about geopolitics, we think about governments, we think about nation states. Now, technology companies essentially have dominion in the virtual world, in the digital world. But when we created the internet, that didn't matter very much because, you know, the internet's really important and has driven a lot of productive value, but you didn't have national power or global power on the basis of being a key actor on the internet. I mean, Netscape didn't have geopolitical power, right? As we talk about AI, suddenly we're talking about the technology actors that dominate AI having enormous influence over national security, enormous influence over the success or failure of your political system, uh, whether or not civil society can continue, over whether or not the markets can appropriately function. In other words, the digital order is quickly becoming an order with the kind of geopolitical power that the security order has. Mm -hmm. But the digital order is dominated by technology companies and really by a small number of technology companies that right now are mostly in the United States and China. But that doesn't mean that they act with the interests of the U.S. government, for example, or even of the Chinese government. And so that means lots of things. But one of the things I think it means is that the governance structure for AI is going to have to be a hybrid structure. In other words, it will fail if it is driven only by the governments. I mean, the EU is out of the box early and they have this AI act that they intend to roll out in the next two years. Mm -hmm. There are no governments on the planet that have, in my view, the expertise or the resources, or the focus, or the speed to effectively govern AI. Now, if the response to that is, well, that means the tech companies have to govern themselves, I'm not in. Yeah, game over. And neither is Mustafa Suleiman, my good friend, and the co-author of mine on this piece. And he is the co-founder of DeepMind, and also one of the seven signatories at the White House of these AI executives on how they might be able to start creating a regulatory structure at very early days.
2: Just two months ago, Kamala and I met with these leaders, most of them are here again, to underscore the responsibility in making sure that <clears throat> products that they are producing are safe and, uh, and making them public what they are and what they are. Since then, I met with some of America's top minds in technology to hear the range of perspectives and possibilities and risks of AI. This is a serious responsibility. We have to get it right. And there's enormous, enormous potential upside as well.
0: And so what we both think we need is a hybrid governance structure where the tech companies and the governments are working together as principles. And uh, And that's new. That's not the way we think about geopolitics going forward. I mean, you're almost asking them to act as if they're signatories of a treaty. Yeah. But I'm sure you read that piece by Ronan Farrow on Elon Musk uh, that came out in the New Yorker just recently. Yeah, of course. And it's a piece, it's, it's not really just about Elon. It's really about just how much power these technology companies have. And in this case, it was talking about the decisions made by Elon of to what extent the Ukrainians were going to have access to technology would allow them to fight and defend themselves. Mm-hmm. This is just the tip of the iceberg in very short order, principal questions about national security and the global economy and society and our political system will be answered by a small number of guys that run technology companies. So I I don't believe the governments can effectively regulate that. And I don't want the technology companies to just decide it uh, because I don't think they have the, the interests of the public in heart. And even if they did, um, that could change in an instant.
1: Yeah, but Ian, like the technology companies are generally governed through financial interest. Like we live in a capitalistic society. Your notion of like, let's bring them to the table. The other notion is we could set up checks and balances. Like we could actually like not have like a frenemy like relationship, but actually like hold each other accountable. Like why are you proposing so much to bring them to the table as opposed to
0: setting up checks and balances? I'm all in favor of checks and balances. I'm all in favor of the people that are profiting the most from the AI revolution to be responsible for paying for the negative externalities that are caused as a consequence. And so, I mean, I don't have a problem with a digital service tax being rolled out in Canada, for example. I mean, there will be checks and balances. We're going to need to have a new way of thinking about capitalism and productive labor, and someone's going to have to pay for that. And it can't just be the public sector and some of it will be, but some of it's gonna be private. So of course that's gonna happen. But in this environment where the tech companies are, they're the only ones that have the knowledge and how these algorithms work. They are working as fast as they can to roll out these new generative AI large language models. And the, the implications of that and the companies that come from that are gonna have world-changing aspects, not in 20 years, in 20 months. And I just don't believe that the governments will be fast enough or that they will have the expertise to create those checks and balances by themselves. I do not. If we had 20 years, I think we could potentially get there. I just
1: I just don't think we do. I think you're right. I think the clock is moving. I mean, we're in a place where like every day feels like a year. Right. You mentioned this at one point in the piece, but like, how do you prevent regulatory capture in this world then?
0: Well, first of all, I would turn that question back to you, Rafi, and say, how do you prevent regulatory capture right now? And the answer is the Americans are doing a pitiful job of that. I mean, we have a system presently where governments are frequently acting at the direct bidding of very wealthy special interests, some on the left, some on the right, some indifferent. That have nothing to do with the public will. It's very interesting, Raphael. I'm going to take us a little off field, but it's important. Okay. I was in a Latin America summit that was in Brazil a few weeks ago, and there was a, a wealthy businessman that asked me, don't you think in a system where we pay so much more taxes, a lot of us in this room, that we should have more votes than people that don't? And I said, you're going to be very surprised at my response. I think that would be a much fairer system than the one we have right now. If If people knew that you get 10 votes because you'd pay 10 times as much tax but you don't get to capture the system illicitly <laughs> that you don't you aren't structurally advantaged you can't like buy your kids away into a university by buying a building you can't change the vote of your congressman because you're personally funding it and you only get 10 more votes <laughs> that sounds like a far more fair system than what we presently have so I mean, I'm pushing back hard on the idea that regulatory capture isn't a problem. It is a huge problem. But I also believe that these AI companies themselves are concerned, they are legitimately concerned about what they're creating. They're still gonna wanna lobby. They still want taxes to be low. They still want to like keep you out of their knitting. They're the goose that lays the golden eggs. They're all gonna be focused on what their business model basically is. But there are so many knock-on consequences of releasing AI into the wild. Consequences that come from disinformation and people having no ability to understand what is and isn't true in a democracy or an authoritarian regime. Consequences that come from the proliferation of these technologies in the hands of bad actors or tinkerers, some of which will be using their chat GPTs and open AIs, and some of which will be using knockoffs that are created, you know, on the dark web, sure. and then there are the issues of dehumanization, of kids having principal relationships with bots as opposed to with other human beings and becoming more like AI. Mm-hmm. Those are things that companies are actually worried about, and yet they really don't have a lot of bandwidth to focus on how we would create governance around that. nor expertise. Some of them don't even have the interest, but none of them have the bandwidth because they're spending all of their time just trying to build the next thing. Exactly. So I think that they've got the expertise, they've got the resources, but the governments have the legitimacy, or at least some legitimacy, you know, that maybe not as much as they need, Um, and together they're going to need to work. And some of this should be in the hands of the United Nations as well. Uh, I've been very pleased to see the initial response of the UN, of the Secretary General, of his technology envoy, of others specifically to what we're talking about here. They, they, they know that we need a global technical organization that can create some of the, the conversation, the analysis of where AI is in the way that they do for climate change presently. I've been enormously, and Mustafa as well, we've been really, really pleased to see how much uptake these ideas are getting in a body that actually does have the global reach and mandate to do this stuff? I would love to talk about that. I mean, I, I definitely have issues
1: with the IPCCs. I'm not quite sure that's the best metaphor, but. You mentioned it briefly, and, I, and it's something I've been curious to ask you about, open source AI. Yeah. So in some ways, a lot of the, what you're talking about, is these companies want to create regulation, but that's around the stuff that they control. What about the stuff that's already out there in the wild? Like Meta is doing this play of just like releasing their things. Right. France is investing more in open source as their way of trying to get into the system because they have no entrepreneurs on their side doing AI. How does open source then factor
0: in all of this? Well, this is part of why we came up with this idea of techno-prudential regulation. Because in this regard, you are suddenly going to have a manifestation of all of these actors, essentially in garages, right? That are running AI, doing God knows what. And we don't want AI to break. We want people to do productive things, but any individual actor could have negative structural consequences for the entire system totally so is there anything like that and the answer is yes there is the financial markets (laughs) financial markets have millions and millions of players all over the world and we know that we need to have the ability to engage in free and fair trade we all want the markets to work and we have technocratic governance around it we have central bankers that are more independent than any other actor in their countries, whether they're authoritarian countries or whether they're democratic. We have uh, a Bank of International Settlements, we have an IMF, we have a Financial Stability Board, and the Americans the Europeans and the Chinese operate together above geopolitics to recognize that we need the financial markets to operate smoothly. We also need to limit risk to the system And when something happens, threatens the system, we need to all do everything we can to keep the system functioning, to keep liquidity flowing, to like, you know, sort of ring fence what the danger is. Sure, Mustafa and I think that's the approach we need to take on artificial intelligence, techno-prudential regulation, because we all need it to work, but because with open source models and with explosive proliferation of these technologies just in their capabilities. This is not going to be seven companies in the United States. This is going to be systemic. Precisely. And we all need it to work, but we all need to limit what bad actors can do and respond with major consequences when they occur and create a regulatory environment that reflects that. I, I'm not saying it's easy. We're not there, but, We've done a reasonably good job in keeping the financial markets afloat, granted, um, with some fairly significant crises, but usually after the crisis, that also forces you to say, okay, what happened wrong there? How do we fix that? Because we all know we need to fix that. See, we need the AI system to be something that everyone out there has an interest in fixing. Do we need a crisis then, in order for us of to course. get our acts together here? Of course, of course. I mean, but, <laughs> that's the most depressing answer. <laughs> but no, but but the fact is, you don't need a crisis to get it started. The fact is that if you have the conversations now and people are already thinking in these terms, they may not move fast enough. They may not deploy the resources. You may not get the Chinese as engaged as you want to. Some private sector actors will say, "Screw you! I don't want to be a part of it." But then when the first crisis happens and you're already down this path, the motivation, the kick in the pants that you've then gotten from those consequences is going to move you a lot faster in the direction that you need to go. So I, I'm OK with that. I mean, not that I have a choice, uh, but but look, uh, we didn't write this piece. Feeling like this was a fool's errand and, and we're already too late. We don't feel that way. We don't feel that way at all. Sure. I mean, look, we're already at the point in GPT four where you've got a bunch of people saying that's not really that interesting when we thought it was magical, like you know, six months ago. Yeah. And now they're like, yeah, but it's not that good, you know. I mean, like you know, it's it doesn't really like replace people, not realizing that this stuff is going to get exponentially better, like really, really, really fast. That's right. I mean, the fact is that if If we're going to stay where it is right now, I don't think you need our peace. But given the fact that it is not and that this is going to be world changing in almost every manifestation of power within a matter of small numbers of years, for good and for bad, uh, we consider
1: this urgent. You paint a clear end picture for me. Can you walk me through how we sort of get there? Like right now, I mean, we talked about before, you know, China and U.S. are kind of like locked in a thing, semiconductor regulation. There's a question around, like, how do we get our values aligned so we can do
0: international like what what are the steps in order to get to that end place? Well, I thought it was interesting. You have the U.S. government bringing seven technology founders slash CEOs together to come up with, um, voluntary principles of governance and regulation for AI.
2: In May, we unveiled a new strategy to establish seven new AI research institutes to help drive breakthroughs in responsible AI intervention. And today, I'm pleased to announce that these seven companies have agreed to voluntary commitments for responsible innovation. These commitments, which uh, the companies will implement immediately, underscore three fundamental principles, safety, security, and trust that on the one
0: hand, they are largely already trying to do. Mm. So it didn't really
2: pin them to the floor. These commitments are real and they're concrete. They're going to help fulfill industry, fulfill this fundamental obligation to Americans to develop safe, secure, and trustworthy technologies that benefit society and uphold our values and our shared values.
0: At the same time, the U.S. government is moving quickly and trying to get an executive order that will codify some of this stuff, and we'll see what the legality of all that is in the coming weeks so soon, that is, I think, the beginning of what could be a techno-prudential forum. And I could see some of those technologies putting together a geotechnology stability board that starts in the United States with a few actors from the U.S. government that are either observers or participating but that very quickly tries to bring in others. Because look, the, the U.S. has the advantage of being first mover on this stuff. Sure. And it has all the money. So if they're the ones that get it started, then can you get others to align? And I think the answer to that in some cases will be yes. Uh, in the same way that you got people to respond to the CHIPS Act when the Americans put it together. That's a government thing driving and the corporate's following. This is a hybrid model, but same sort of stuff. Then the question is how do you get the Chinese there? The interesting thing about the Chinese, they are very concerned about the implications of artificial intelligence. There was the first ever conversation on AI at the Security Council last month. The Russians were completely um, obstreperous. Chinese were fairly constructive. In fact, the Chinese were saying, look, here's what we're trying to do to govern and regulate AI in our system because as an authoritarian system, they're deeply concerned about what human beings might be able to do with these models and especially with these models that might be open source. So I, I am more optimistic that a technocratic approach that brings the Chinese in is plausible in AI. It is interesting because right now, of course, if you talk to the people that are involved in governance about China, their model for AI is very different. It is cold war, we've got to win, zero-sum, we've got to have export controls, semiconductors, all that kind of stuff. And what Mustafa and I are saying is actually there are areas of AI that will have those national security implications, like lethal autonomous drones Mm. and AI not being able to target them. But for generative AI, first of all, it's all dual use. All of it is. You can use it for literally everything. They are general models. That's the entire point. Yeah. But in very short order, the Americans and Chinese are going to be aligned with stability. And everyone is going to be looking at how do we stop this thing from breaking. Mm. And, and th- that's why I believe, I mean, the techno-prudential approach, it's a step change in how we think about governance here. And it's a really important conversation to have.
1: We've talked about a bunch of different of the institutions needed here. So like the companies, the governments, governments, plural, what else is missing here? Like, where's the role for academia? Where's the role for regular citizens? Like, how does that all fit together?
0: Well, you know, you said you're skeptical of the intergovernmental panel on climate change. But the reason I find it a valuable institution is because we now have pretty much everyone in the world that knows how much carbon is in the atmosphere, Yeah. how much methane, how much deforestation has happened, how many species we've lost, how much the temperature has changed. We know that. And we know that because we put together a group of public and private sector and scientific and academic leaders from around the world, from over 190 countries under the aegis of the United Nations. It is a scientific body. It's an analytic body. It does not have power to execute and implement. But it creates a common body of knowledge of the state of the field and the state of the field is changing a lot. Now, has that led us to fix climate change? Not as fast as we need to, but you got to start with that. And so I I don't want to over claim what an intergovernmental panel on AI could do, but I think the basis of getting the academic and scientific and private and public sector global actors in place to have an understanding of the state of play of AI and what is likely coming. Sure. Like who are the actors that matter in what spaces? What do we need to pay attention to? Let's all have that out there. We need that transparency. We have to have it. We need that understanding. And uh, my good friend, Antonio Guterres, uh, who is the secretary general, has recently called for a high level panel on AI that will bring together public and private sector and academic actors to advise him on that. I think that could easily be the precursor to an intergovernmental panel on AI. And his technology envoy, Amandeep Gill, has publicly come out and said that he supports all of this. So the the UN has its limitations, we know, but specifically for this part of the challenge, I think they are the appropriate institution to bring those actors together. Super interesting.
1: Ian, I know you're, you're off enjoying a vacation. I really appreciate you even taking a few minutes to spend with me, so thank you so much. Yeah, good to talk to you, man. See you soon. Our email address is technicallyoptimistic at emersoncollective.com. Follow us on social media at Emerson Collective. I'm Rafi Krikorian. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time on Technically Optimistic.